Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 178, Dereliction of Duty. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Philip, Jennifer, and Alice for contributing already. When we last left off, we were talking about what a big deal King Egbert of Wessex was. And for good reason. In 829, King Egbert of Wessex held virtually all of the south, and even demanded the submission of Northumbria after a battle at the River Door, an event that earned King Egbert the incredibly rare title of Bretwalda, Britain ruler. This is how rare it was. There are only nine recorded Bretwaldas in all of British history. Just nine. So that gives you a sense of what a big deal he was. And his conquests also gained him a tremendous amount of money. Because he had seized the Mint of London, and he began issuing coins in his own name as the King of Mercia. King Egbert's dramatic rise in power from 825 to 829 was meteoric and he absolutely earned his title of Britain ruler. At least, from 825 to 829. The trouble, though, is that it's no longer 829. It's 830. And in 830, we have a front-row seat to a complete reversal of fortune for Wessex. Francia had just exploded into a full-blown civil war, thanks to a fight over who should inherit the empire when Emperor Louis the Pious died. And nothing says I love you quite like launching a war against your own father because you want his stuff when he dies. But the point is that suddenly the Frankish Empire was focused upon internal issues, and that almost certainly disrupted their support of Wessex at a time when King Egbert really needed it. It also caused the Frankish Coast Guard to abandon their patrols of the northern coast of Francia, and the Vikingers noticed the way that Britain's rich eastern and southern coasts were suddenly wide open. Up until this point, the Frankish fleet had redirected the Vikinger attacks away from the English Channel, and consequently, the opportunistic raiders focused their attention towards less heavily patrolled shores. And so, they were giving Scotland and Ireland the business. Ireland was getting hit at a rate of about once a year, and the Northmen were already colonizing some of the Scottish Hebrides, probably Orkney, and were also making moves towards the Isle of Man. So, in the early 800s, Ireland and Scotland were engaged in a long and bloody fight with the Scandinavians, who were coming mostly from the Norwegian territories. But it wouldn't be long before the Danes got in on the action, disputing Norse claims to Irish lands, and occasionally even forming alliances with the Irish in their territorial fights. The Northmen were not stupid. They were shrewd, opportunistic warriors who were all too aware of how effective it can be to divide and conquer. But the end result of all of this is that for nearly 40 years, the Northmen had been expanding their fleets and building wealth through the regular raids of the British Isles and other surrounding areas. And so now, their crews were larger, better equipped, and more experienced than they had ever been before in history and the English Channel lay open before them without any real defenses. And the sea was a major road to invasion for Britain, 
because the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms weren't overly interested in seafaring. Whatever ancestral connection they may have had with the intrepid sailors Hengist, Horsa, and Ayla, these Anglo-Saxons appear to have had little interest in emulating those potentially mythic seafaring warriors. Consequently, we don't have any evidence of large fleets of English warships in the 7th and 8th centuries. Not only that, but they don't seem to have recognized that attacking via the sea was even a possibility, since many of the most prestigious and therefore wealthy monasteries were located right next to the sea, or near easily navigable rivers. If the English were concerned with naval warfare, and if they were worried about their monasteries being struck, it's doubtful they would have placed their holy buildings in such an exposed location. It was a massive oversight. But, as is a common refrain in the story from this era, no one really seemed to take too much notice of that growing threat from the north. So they didn't build a fleet. They barely constructed defenses other than the occasional bridge, in fact. Instead, they focused on local matters. The Anglo-Saxon nobility were extremely concerned with whether or not their neighbors would come in and force them to serve as sub-kings and then demand taxes rather than the more pressing matter of whether or not ships carrying scores of northern warriors would come in, kill their warbands, and simply take everything that wasn't nailed down. The Anglo-Saxons of this era had considerable resources, and yet we really do see no evidence that they are trying to construct fleets to protect their coasts. And they should have known that they needed one, because it was a fleet that had been keeping them safe up till this point. But instead of seeing the collapse of the Frankish Coast Guard for the existential threat that it was, it seems that the Anglo-Saxon nobility saw the political chaos across the border and then took the opportunity to get a little payback against some rivals and reclaim some lost lands. Because Emperor Louis' civil war had the odd side effect of weakening his Anglo-Saxon ally, King Egbert of Wessex. And that enabled King Wiglaf of Mercia to return from exile and liberate Mercia from West Saxon control. Wiglaf also reclaimed some Mercian southern lands, including Berkshire, and it's also possible that Essex, under King Sigeric, was re-established by Wiglaf as a Mercian satellite. Looking at everything, it's unlikely that Egbert had any significant authority over Mercia or Northumbria after that moment. So all of a sudden, most of England, north of the Thames, was free from West Saxon interventionism. Even King Athelstan of East Anglia was able to fully assert his independence from both Wessex and Mercia during this period. Just as the late 820s were a period of intense growth for Wessex, here, in 830, we're seeing a tremendous series of losses at just about the same rate of speed. And it left the West Saxons falling back to their homelands in the south. And, of course, to their Kentish lands, which included Sussex and Surrey. Now, rather than ruling most of England, King Egbert would just rule over Wessex, and his son, Aethelwulf, would rule over the conglomerate sub-kingdom of Kent. But I suppose that is only fair, since it was Aethelwulf that was responsible for the acquisition of Kent. It really is a fascinating turn of events. And I can absolutely understand why the various leaders did what they did. But sitting where I am, knowing what I know, it's shocking to me that not a single one of them had even a little more foresight and found a way to work together. Because an unpatrolled channel would turn out to be a big problem for everyone, Frankish and English alike.
But here we are in 830, and Mercia was, after a brief disruption, once again being ruled by the Whig dynasty. The Whig dynasty was a family that might have been an offshoot of the Mercian royal family. As you might remember, the Mercians determined a king's eligibility not just through the king's genealogy, but also by who he was married to. So it looks like he was probably part of old King Aethelbald's family, maybe one of the bastards. And then he married Queen Chinnithrith, who, based upon her name and position, very well might have been connected to King Penda. So the old gang was back in charge. And overall, unlike his recent predecessors, King Wiglaf was a wise and effective king, who was smart enough to take advantage of the fact that Wessex appears to have settled down for the time being. So, he did what any Mercian king would do in that situation. He attacked the Welsh. Now, it isn't clear exactly when he attacked the Welsh, but based upon later events, it's clear that the Welsh of Poes had been brought under Mercian control at some point around here. So, right about now, Wiglaf was probably fighting and winning a war against Poes and forcing their submission. Also, right at about the same time, Sub-King Aethelwulf of Kent, son of Egbert, married Osburga. She was the daughter of a nobleman named Oslac from either Hampshire or the Isle of Wight. But Osburga is most important to us because she would end up having at least five children with Sub-King Aethelwulf. Their names were Aethelbald, Aethelbert, Aethelred, Aethelswitha, and then, just to break the naming mold, Alfred. And guess which one is the most famous of her kids? So those are the major points of interest that you should know about in the lead-up to 830, and all of it told in a very short space of time. In the following year, 831, things mostly continued as normal. King Wiglaf, being a Mercian king, was hard at work at his second job, trying to curry favor with Archbishop Wolfred of Canterbury. And yeah, Archbishop Wolfred was still around. He was still kicking it. But rather than being in a Mercian-dominated Kent, he was now in a West Saxon-dominated Kent. And it appears that he might have started to be a little more friendly with the Mercians after that switch, since the West Saxons played a little rougher than the Mercians did. I wonder if he looked back wistfully at his days under King Conewulf of Mercia, and wondered why he complained so much. But whatever the case, it looks like Wiglaf was trying to win his support. And so, he gave Wolfred what he loved most. Land. However, any support Wiglaf might have gained was soon lost thereafter, because on March 24th, 832, Archbishop Wolfred died, and he was replaced by a guy named Feologild, who then immediately died. And then he was replaced by Cholnoth. And if I was Wiglaf, I would have waited a few months before making any land grants. Archbishops seem to have been dropping like flies. Meanwhile, we have records that indicate that King Sigurich of the East Saxons was acting as a minister to King Wiglaf of Mercia. So seriously, Wiglaf was picking up where his predecessors had left off. He was back to building a hegemony. So Mercia was not knocked out of the game and a West Saxon future was anything but guaranteed. In fact, given the recent losses suffered by King Egbert, a return to Mercian domination of the South, including Wessex, might have seemed inevitable. And Wiglaf's actions certainly seemed to indicate that he was working towards that goal. 
At some point around here, Sub-King Aethelwulf of Kent and Osburga had a child, and they named him Aethelbald. Egbert was a grandfather. And that brings us to 834. For four years, the Frankish Empire had been ravaged by civil war, political coups, and even a sham trial of Emperor Louis the Pious. The power block that Charlemagne had spent his life building was on the verge of shattering, and his son was having a hell of a time holding it together, thanks in large part to the machinations of his own family members, who made the Bluths look like the Brady Bunch. But dealing with that for four years had completely broken the Frankish coastal defenses. And that was really bad news for the empire's richest port, Dorestad. It was just hanging out there, twisting in the breeze. And in 834, Vikingers from Denmark attacked the trading port in force and made off with so much loot that they came back three more times in successive years. That must have been a shocking event. That the biggest port in an empire as powerful as Francia couldn't stop the Vikingers? It must have been a clarion call for people on both sides of the channel, right? Right? Nah, the English kept doing what they were doing. Who cares what happens to the Franks? It'll never happen here, right? Right? On the south end of the Thames estuary, so right on the south part where the Thames meets the English Channel, is an adorable little Kentish island called Sheppey. It has lovely beaches, ancient farms, and most importantly, a minster. 165 years earlier, King Egbert of Kent, who was different from King Egbert of Wessex, and you can tell because it was 165 years ago. Anyway, in 670, King Egbert of Kent gave his mom, Sakespeare, a big chunk of land so she could build a nunnery. And that's what Sakespeare did. She built a Benedictine nunnery. So, let's fast forward 165 years, back to our present point in the timeline. So, 835. And as we've been discussing, the Frankish defenses had been so thoroughly broken that they couldn't even stop Danish Vikingers from looting their primary trading port. Repeatedly. And here we have this minster on a relatively isolated island in Kent, right on the mouth of the Thames. Furthermore, we know, and more importantly, the Vikingers knew, that these minsters held a tremendous amount of wealth and had almost no defenses. So, before you could say road trip, the Danish Vikingers were making a beeline for the little island of Sheppey, and there was little the nuns could do to stop them. As with much in this period, we aren't given details. We don't know exactly what happened to the nuns. And don't forget that these minsters weren't just homes for religious people. Rather, they supported an entire community of laypeople as well. It takes a lot of work to enable a group of mostly noble-born people to spend their days in prayer and religious service. We don't know exactly what happened to the people there. If they survived and fled, if they were captured, enslaved, assaulted, or killed. We don't know. But whatever happened to them... It seems that the raid was successful, and the Vikingers made out like bandits. Not only that, but they discovered that England was unprotected. The Thames was unprotected. And these Scandinavians weren't just Vikingers. They were also traders. So they clearly knew where the wealth of Europe was located, and where to strike. 
and now they had discovered that the road to the wealthy trading towns of London and Londonwich were opening up. It sure would be good to have that fleet right about now, wouldn't it? Especially since the raids would become an almost annual occurrence for the English for the next 30 years, with their ships reaching as far south as Cornwall and Somerset. The only true safe harbor for the English was now to move as far from navigable waters as possible. The trauma of this resulted in book production halting almost entirely in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, and it wouldn't start going again in earnest for about 50 years. When you think about it though, that does make a bit of sense. The wealth of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and the literate men of society tended to concentrate at the same locations. So while the goal wasn't to destroy a couple generations of English learning through raids, that was certainly the result. And it's difficult to overstate how bad this was. Hyam points out that by the time Alfred took the throne, no one south of the Humber could understand the liturgy or translate Latin into English. And Alfred, through his biographer Asser, laid the blame for the loss of English intellectual life squarely upon the Viking attacks and the decadence of the surviving monasteries. Things were taking a dark turn in Eastern Britain. On that same year, the Vikingers struck the monastery at St. Philibert, at Noir-Moutier in western France. And this is yet another sign that the Frankish defenses on the Channel had fully broken down. Because the monastery at Noir-Moutier was all too aware of the dangers of the Vikingers, as it was the first recorded attack in France back in 799. Yet here we are, 36 years later, and the Danish Vikingers were back and it looks like the Franks could do little to stop them. Something had to be done. And you know what they needed to do, right? Since the Franks were knocked out of the fight due to infighting, the Anglo-Saxons would need to go back to their roots and build a fleet. And maybe that would buy the Franks enough time to stop punching themselves in the face and relaunch their own fleets. And then maybe, maybe, they could stop the raids. So... The English went to work. And at about 835, so right at about the same time as these attacks, the abbess of Repton gave Ilderman Humbert of Mercia a huge chunk of land in exchange for a promise. Humbert promised that he would provide 300 shillings of lead every year to Canterbury. The wheels of English industry were turning, and they were focusing on the upper-class art and sculpture industry in Canterbury. Really. That seriously is what happened there. And what the hell? At the same time that the English were dealing with an explosion of violence from the Viking raids, we see their nobility doing the hard work of completely ignoring it. And I know, Alfred's biographer Asser claimed that Alfred dragged the English out of an uncultured pit of ignorance. But the truth is much more nuanced than that. And at least in Canterbury, the response to these raids, raids, by the way, that were just around the corner from them, well, their response appears to have been, that corner of the estate looks a bit lonely, Unferth. I think we need a new sculpture. So, I guess Asser was wrong. Culture was alive and well during this period. But you have to wonder about their priorities. Because a boat or two might have been nice. But hey... Maybe that was just Kent. The Mercians were warriors. 
They had a long line of bloody warrior kings and experienced war bands. Even after a series of brutal defeats, they managed to retake their lands from the most powerful kingdom in the south, Wessex. Surely, the warrior culture of Mercia would demand that they step up to the challenge. So, King Wiglaf did what Mercian kings do best. And in 836, he reinstituted the ecclesiastical councils. And at Croft, in Leicestershire, the Archbishop of Canterbury and 11 other bishops showed up. And at that council, King Wiglaf focused on what was most pressing to the English at this time. He granted the Minster of Hanbury immunity from all taxes and duties, except, of course, for the construction of ramparts and bridges. And I guess we should be happy that at least Hanbury wasn't being exempted from building defenses. But seriously, how about a fleet? Now, all snark aside, if it wasn't for the growing threat from Scandinavia, I'd be talking about this in a very different tone, because it is actually quite interesting. King Wiglaf was forming a great southern council in the style of his forebears, and that was a bold signal to all the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that Mercia was back. Not only that, but the fact that so many luminaries attended suggests that the West Saxon supremacy might not have been all that secure. Something else to note is that he was granting rights and exemptions rather than lands. And we see this happening with other Mercian leaders from this period, and it suggests that Mercian kings might have been running short on land, and that while they are trying to make a comeback, Mercia wasn't anywhere near the kingdom it once had been. It's all very interesting stuff. But what I find most fascinating is that the leadership, even leadership that was located in regions which were currently experiencing Viking raids, just kind of ignored it and carried on like it was business as usual. I mean, could you imagine that happening today? If we were facing off with a global catastrophe, the sort of catastrophe that could leave huge parts of our economy in tatters, shake our cultural institutions to the core, and destroy most of our coastal cities, forcing the population to press inland for safety and access to food. And rather than focusing on that, our politicians just wanted to talk about who gets the gavel in the House of Representatives, or whether or not the Prime Minister f***ed a pig's head at a fancy party at university. Boy, we would be so angry at such a clear dereliction of duty. But back to what was going on back then. We just had a bunch of nobles stood around basically saying, Oh, I love your new sculpture. By the way, did you hear that rumor about Unferth and the gerbils? And it ends exactly the way you think it will. No, not with the gerbils. I mean with the Viking attacks. Because on that same year that King Wiglaf formed a grand council to talk about taxes, 35 ships of Danish Vikingers set sail. 35 ships. Think about that. While we don't know exactly how many men a Viking ship could hold, we do know that it would have been a sizable force. Generally, scholars believe that a ship from this period would carry somewhere between 32 and 70 men. So, assuming that no one was exaggerating, we're looking at a force between 1,120 warriors and 2,450 warriors. This was not a band of Vikingers. This was an army. And it could strike virtually anywhere with no warning. And it was coming to England.
All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And pretty soon I'm going to be live tweeting my thoughts on the new Bernard Cornwall TV series, The Last Kingdom. So if you'd like to see what I think of that show, you can tune in there. And if you'd like to join all our other communities, you can find links at the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. Yeah.